this episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station, as well as Emily's YouTube channel and Brattleboro Community Television. I am your host, Olga Peters, and we have on the show this week regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, who is one of three representatives for the town of Brattleboro, as well as State Auditor Doug Hoffer. So glad you can join us today, Doug. My pleasure. Thank you, Olga. And we want to talk about today a recent, I'm going to call it an investigation or an audit, that your office did looking at healthcare affordability and particularly Vermonters ability to pay. And what your office found was that basically the cost of providing healthcare is outpacing basically the growth in Vermonters wages. And from your uh, five page letter that you sent to the Green Mountain Care Board, which is the organization that For those who don't know, the organization that oversees hospital budgets and um, a lot of the finances related to uh, Green Mountain Care. Um, This is the, the line that stood out to me. Absent from the board's regulatory review process, cost growth targets and routine analysis is a clear and direct consideration of Vermonters' ability to pay for health care. In other words, the board that is supposed to be overseeing this, in many ways, this issue is, it hasn't really been doing that. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Doug, and, and sort of the your office's findings? Sure, I'd be happy to, and thank you for asking. I, obviously, we think the issue is extremely important. It's not going away. It's uh, healthcare in Vermont is about $6.2 billion. It's almost 20% of the state's entire economy. And what we showed, among many other things in the report, is the huge divergence between expenditures for healthcare and Vermonters' wages. But back to the beginning, the Green Mountain Care Board was created uh, about 10 years ago. And the legislature made it very clear what their intent and priorities were. They they noted at the beginning several principles that should guide the work of the Green Mountain Care Board. And the first two are about affordability, and which makes sense. Why not? Uh, you know, when the board was created, we had just completed a 10 or 15 year period where healthcare costs had grown, I won't say exponentially, but pretty quickly and out of control. So, you know, credit to the state and the legislature for saying we need to get this under control. We're going to create this new entity, going to have a lot of responsibility. Some would say in the early years, too much and not enough resources. Now they have a lot of resources, but they still have a lot to do. So it isn't just hospital budgets, it's also insurance rates, among other things. So uh, they are required to consider affordability. However, a very important decision was made now about almost five years ago with regard to the all-payer ACO and also hospital budgets, they set a cost target. And when they did their negotiations with CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, the federal entity, which is bigger than God, uh, they agreed that they would follow the path laid out by Maryland, which some years prior had said, well, we too are concerned about the rapid growth in healthcare, so let's have a target that's more sensible. So what they did is use uh, 
the change, the annual average change in gross state product, which to a layperson who doesn't follow this kind of stuff sounds reasonable enough. Why not? That's what the economy is doing. Let's make sure that healthcare does that too. Well, the fact is, um, there is no good correlation between gross state product and wages. Mm -hmm. State product generally grows much faster than wages. Now, that's a function of the economy over the last 40 years post Reagan. Wages have been not entirely, but fairly stagnant compared to a lot of other stuff. So they adopted that percentage, which was 3.5%. And if you run that out in a hypothetical against wages, you see this immense gap, this, this alligator mouth here, uh, you know, consuming everything in its path. So that was part of the problem. They used a similar approach to hospital budgets. So we looked at actual expenditures, not the budgets that were approved by the board over the years, but actual. I think you can see it if you have the document there. And from 13 on, uh, I think if I have this right, the actual hospital budget increase was 200 and, no, I take it back, 65%. And wages only increased 18%. That is, for lack of a better phrase, an affordability gap. Mm -hmm. now, not everybody paid at that rate. Many people have insurance, many people have good insurance. A lot of people don't have good insurance. A lot of people are grossly underinsured. In mm -hmm. because their employers, for those lucky enough to have employer-assisted health care, have also been struggling with this because the board, uh, and this is sort of an odd, uh, an oddity in statute, they are required when reviewing hospital insurance rate requests to make sure that the insurer is viable and doesn't go belly up. Mm -hmm. And we appreciate that. You don't want to lose Blue Cross Blue Shield if it's the major commercial insurer in the state. However, to say that you're balancing that with affordability, when it comes out to that kind of a gap, then it's not working. It's clearly not working. And what happens as a result of the rates going up are a number of things. One, employers are required to keep paying those rates. Mm -hmm. so they have a couple of responses to that. One is, my goodness, we're gonna have to buy a cheaper policy. What that usually means for the employee is a higher deductible, mm -hmm. uh, its own problem. People put off healthcare because they can't afford to meet the deductible, uh, or and or they reduce wages. So it's a problem, um, and that's what we saw in in looking at this work. So you know the board, I'm not trashing the members of the board. They're all smart, well-intentioned people, uh, but they haven't been, in in our opinion, and as the evidence suggests, they have not been seriously considering affordability. And uh, for listeners who are. Um tuning into this conversation for the first time but are interested in this topic, we spoke to the healthcare advocate, Mike Fisher, about sort of that definition of affordability in the eyes of the Green Mountain Care Board and how different that might be from how you and I might understand affordability as something that might be linked to our ability to pay, perhaps. Mm -hmm. So- yeah. Mike Fisher's been very good about this over the years, yeah. Can I- um, when I think about how expensive the cost of healthcare is, or you know, even the bill that someone gets, which might not match up with how much they're paying, but they know their insurer is being charged, where does the money go? And when I ask, you know, on a national scale, I have a better sense of how to answer that. There's a lot of publicly traded companies where there are shareholders, there are CEOs, and I know that CEOs in Vermont make an enormous amount as compared to the average Vermonter's wage but it doesn't seem to me to be enough to be making up the difference in how much money seems to be flowing into the system. So 
and we have nonprofit, everyone's hypothetically a nonprofit in the system. So where, where does the money go? Well, that's a very good question. <laughs> Almost half the money goes to hospitals, which shouldn't be surprising. Mm -hmm. We have a lot more people getting care in hospitals than we should. Part of the goal of the all-payer ACO, for what it's worth, and we can talk about that later, mm. is, yes, reduce, please. Yeah, is to reduce utilization of hospitals and increase people's preventive care and general health. So they won't need mm -hmm. as much health care, particularly hospital-provided health care. Uh, the hospitals, as we reported in a, a, another report about a month ago, have been aggressively buying providers. Yes. Independent doctors practicing, individuals and half dozen or more in a practice. So that it, it, today, I think it's 83% of all doctors work for hospitals. Mm -hmm. Now, if uh, Emily, if you were a doctor yesterday on your oh, own, I could go to your office and you would provide a service and it might cost $200. Mm -hmm. If after your practice is purchased by the hospital, and I can appreciate why that might appeal to you, less overhead, you don't have to pay the insurance, whatever, you have predictability. But now when I go to you, not only do I pay the 200, but I have to pay a facility fee. Mm -hmm. For example, Fletcher Allen, of course not, not in your part of the state, uh, adds on to your bill that I have to pay. Mm -hmm. Whether I go to the hospital or not. Mm -hmm. so and they would argue, and they have argued, that some of that is because Medicare and Medicaid, uh, they would argue, don't pay what it actually costs to provide services. Mm -hmm. What's interesting is that is a self-attestation by a self-interested party. Mm -hmm. They say this procedure costs $10,000 and Medicare will only pay us $6,500. Should I believe them that it costs $10,000? Well, no, you should do an audit of it. Because they said so. <laughs> you know, so what happens is they say, well, there's a gap. Mm -hmm. It's a very significant gap globally. So what they do is then charge the commercial insurers more to, to make, make up the difference. And so then what happens as we have more and more Vermonters on Medicaid and Medicare, which is the direction we've been going in demographically? It exacerbates the problem for sure. So if the money goes to the hospitals, most of it, to perhaps cover the costs and the difference um, between some insurers and other insurers, is that just, you know, the hospital budgets are, you know, if you audited them, they would be reasonable, costs would be covered, money isn't flowing, is there money flowing out of the state in large quantities? Where does the money, once it goes into the hospital, go? And I'm sorry if I'm asking you questions that you haven't actually done a study of. This is like, it seems like it, people talk about it as, as if it's a vast conspiracy, and I imagine that it's not, and there's a reasonable explanation. I don't think and the explanation might be rampant capitalism, but that's that's an explanation too, right? Well, powerful institutions tend to look after themselves. Yes. In, in the last report we did, um, we referenced peer-reviewed literature that makes it very clear that while uh, hospitals and others and analysts, independent analysts would say, if a hospital expands and buys practices of different natures and is vertically integrated, that can and arguably should produce savings. Furthermore, if hospitals buy other hospitals, that too, in its own way, should produce savings. It can also, depending on the circumstances, like Vermont, where we don't have the kind of competition that, say, Boston has, with half a dozen literally independent 
major hospital institutions. So there's real competition. When there's no competition and those circumstances are as they are here, they have immense power to control prices. Mm -hmm. Unless there is a, a regulatory entity with real backbone. Mm -hmm. And I'm afraid uh, with all due respect that we don't have that mm -hmm. in my opinion. And the evidence suggests that they have not been able to control costs or prices, which is unfortunate. And uh, you know, they would say we have to keep the hospitals viable. Mm -hmm. We have to keep the insurance companies viable. But the all-payer ACO is a legitimate attempt to address the problem of fee-for-service medicine, which is doctors and hospitals doing more tests than is required just to protect themselves. So that's fine. But that itself doesn't address the much bigger question, which I don't know enough about, which is, is our hospital infrastructure what we need? Mm -hmm. Refer to them as community hospitals. And of course, what community, usually a county, doesn't want a full service hospital? It can do anything and everything, whenever mm -hmm. you need it. I, I understand that, I appreciate that. But a lot of the services that we get over time uh, are, are not emergency services. They're planned procedures, a knee replacement, whatever the case may be, all kinds of stuff that maybe you don't necessarily have to have all those uh, capabilities at your local hospital. Mm -hmm. I'm just talking off the top of my head here, but we haven't yet had that conversation globally. That's a hard conversation to have because then you run into what? A very powerful vested interest, which is the association of hospitals. Mm -hmm. And as well as each, I mean, if you're going to pick a hospital, which hospital do you pick and what um, political gravity does that attract to that area or away from that area? You know, when I talk to doctors or um, people who get a lot of procedures, they tend to want to be for a particular procedure. Usually you want to go to a doctor who's performing that procedure often. And in a rural context, that's not really possible because there just aren't enough people needing whatever that procedure is. So in some ways that makes sense, but then we, we lose that, that deep sense of sort of that community center, that community health center, which is a different from a hospital. And I think mm -hmm. perhaps we have some evolution of definition here. So, well, and I think there's also the, the issue when a hospital starts deciding which procedures it will and will not offer, mm -hmm. that also determines which part of the community it's it's serving for example and this is not to pick on on grace cottage but you know as far as i understand it no longer offers um maternity services it no longer delivers babies and that was a decision uh it made for very good reasons and with bmh nearby it it makes sense but then that means also what if we have a lot of young families coming into the area served by Grace Mount, uh, uh, Grace uh, Cottage, what if they want or need maternity services? Um, and again, I don't, I'm not picking on any specific hospital, but it, it does beg the question. Well, this is a conversation that Vermonters should have together. Mm -hmm. it, it should not be driven by the hospitals. You know, it's now been... Uh, over 30 years that the public service board uh, turned the corner and said to the utilities, CVPF, GMP, Burlington Electric, in my case and others, we're not going to approve any of your power purchase contracts until you demonstrate each time that you're investing in energy efficiency. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> their, 
livelihood, their whole raison d'etre all along was just to sell more KWH, period. The line for that was up forever. Every utility analyst said, well, we're gonna need more and more and more and more. Mm -hmm. And Ward wisely said, no, you're delivering services that can be provided with machines and equipment that use electricity, but you have to do it more efficiently. And utilities went, wait, that's not what we do. We sell KWH. So it required a complete change in their view of their own business. Now, I'm so, not about doctors and nurses what to do. That's not what we're talking about. But it's about infrastructure. It's not dissimilar, Emily, you might agree, with some of the problems that the Vermont State Colleges are having. Decisions were made many years ago about their infrastructure, mm -hmm. both infrastructure and how they would utilize each location for what purposes. They all seem to want to be a mini four-year BA experience, and maybe that wasn't what was needed in each community. So I think we need to have that conversation. And I, you know, in that conversation, and I entered it fairly late because we don't have any of the state colleges down my way. And so I was able to be um, a few steps back from the conversation, which was nice because it was um, quite intense. But I don't even understand why UVM isn't part of the Vermont State Colleges system. Like none of the way that it was built, it seems very irrational from the outside, you know, all these years later. And I think our hospital system is similar. When I think about the power of our regulated utilities, and if we think of healthcare as a utility, in some ways we could imagine one care as that um, mandate towards efficiency, right? To reduce costs and services. Um, but it wasn't set up in quite the same way. Uh, and yeah. I think there might be, you know, it's my understanding is there isn't really a cost savings with the way one care is operating right now. There's supposed to be. Yes. That, that was the goal. And at the end of each year, they measure the shared costs or savings. And by the way, just today or yesterday, uh, they, the board released the Medicaid results for 2019. And you know this, Emily, that your viewers might not. Each year, in collaboration with the state and the board, one chair sets out what their goal for the year will be. Mm -hmm. X hundreds of millions of dollars on this particular population. You know, I'm realizing that we should step back even further and explain what One Care is. Oh, we had a 70-page report <laughs> to do that. Uh, yes. <clears throat> okay. I, I'm going to try just a very like broad two-sentence bucket here. The idea is that a lot of the drivers of healthcare costs in Vermont are driven by sort of um, downstream interventions, the kind of things that require hospitals. And if we wanted to save money and have a healthier population, we need to take some of that money that we're spending downstream and move it a little further upstream into prevention work. And so all of a few of the big players in healthcare, this is a very optimistic version of the situation. A few of the big players in healthcare came together and said, we are going to invest a significant chunk of money into this prevention model and we're going to bring in a certain number of patients or Vermonters each year to say, we now get healthcare within this system that really focuses on prevention. And eventually that savings from investing in both prevention and intervention will pay off and we will be a happier, healthier, more healthcare affordable state. But that doesn't quite seem to be working. 
No, what they do in practice is say, uh, even though they haven't met their goals for the number of people, patients involved, which are called attributed lives, uh, they use some pretty reasonable um, data to say those 150,000 people should cost, pick a number, $250 million next year based on historic stuff and so forth and the investments you're talking about. So we're going to give providers a payment per member per month. And you're going to have a pot of money and you get to use that money any way you want. And the goal is for you to get people healthy and keep them healthy. And at the end of the year, we're gonna find out did you spend more or less than we estimated going in? And if we spent more, then you're going to be responsible for some of that over. Mm-hmm. If it costs less, you get some of the savings. That's the way it works. And the report that was just released found that last year, One Care Vermont missed their target just for Medicaid by $12 million. Mm-hmm. So, and that's not the first time. Things aren't going terribly well. And that doesn't include One Care Vermont's administrative costs which were about $19 million. So there's a lot wrong with this picture so far. <laughs> there's a lot wrong with the picture on the administrative costs. There are a lot wrong, there's a lot wrong with the picture around, um, I think people's ability to opt in or not and um, the, um, the mandate related to that and pe- regular Vermonters understanding of what they're opting in or out of. I also have, um, a lot of, I guess I'm gonna use the word compassion for being held accountable for something on a year to year basis that really should have like a 30 year turnaround. And so I'm not sure whoever (laughs) agreed to those outcome measures, but they seem, you don't invest in prevention one year and have the same, and like have someone be healthy that year. That's not really how bodies work, right? That's fair. And uh, it won't surprise you to know your viewers, you probably know this number, that the contract also has a bunch of so-called quality measures. And if you meet those targets in quality, having nothing to do with dollars, then you get bonus points. Yes. And that is rolled into the estimate of, of shared savings or cost. And nobody would argue with the fact that the front-end interventions will take time to evidence saving mm-hmm. and better health and better life and so forth. Uh, but in the near term, they're saying that the other stuff that is happening in real time, better coordination between different providers, sharing of information, uh, reduced unnecessary tests, all that stuff should be producing results now. And it's mm-hmm. not. No. Um, on that note, we're, we're getting close to time where we, we need to break here on WVEW. But, you know, one thing I find, I don't know how this situation uh, manifests for either of you, but I know for me, how the affordability issue kind of manifests is that, you know, I have, I can easily go to my doctor, I've got the money for that. But it's the ongoing preventative things like lab work, particularly, that is the hardest thing to uh, keep paying for. And I find it so interesting, if we want to be preventative, that something like that, like a a blood test, can be hard to pay for. Mm-hmm. You're absolutely right. I agree. On that note, we are going to hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7, Brattleboro's community radio station, Representative Emily Kornheiser and State Auditor. 
WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and if you are just joining us, I am speaking with regular contributor, Representative Emily Kornheiser, as well as State Auditor Doug Hoffer. And we are talking about, yay, healthcare and healthcare costs and Vermonters' ability to pay, which once again, we're coming up against that word, Emily and Doug affordability and what does that mean um before we dive into that though doug i'm curious you know if the green mountain care board and i'm not sure how deeply you can answer this question if the green mountain care board is supposed to oversee some of these costs and and affordability you know what has broken down in the system that that it hasn't happened well first as we point out in the report they have not, to date, established any affordability metrics to measure their work against. That's one. Gotcha. Uh, the other is, to be very honest, and Emily used this word earlier, and she's absolutely right, this is about power. And I don't mean utility power, uh, as we were discussing before, but you know, hospitals are arguably, along with electric utilities and a few others, the most powerful entities in the entire state. And you know, for a regulatory entity, to feel comfortable reining them in and using all of the available powers in statute, uh, they have to feel, I would imagine, like the legislature has their back. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that's the case. No disrespect, certainly not to you, Emily, but I, I don't see much evidence in the last few years that the legislature is even focused on this issue. Furthermore, I don't see any evidence that the administration is focused on this issue. I think after Peter Shumlin's unfortunate uh, experience, our total experience in the effort to move towards single payer collapsed, not because it couldn't be done, by the way, but because it, there was no will to do it, no political will. I think everybody feels like, wow, that is the third rail. I'm not going there. So you have committees of jurisdiction that they hear from healthcare providers and hospitals and insurers all the time, but I've never heard them say, boy, we're really not making progress. Board, what other authority and resources do you need? How can we move forward on this and how can we have a broader conversation and agree on how to proceed? So that's I would, So very interesting to me, you know, the myth of the legislature is very powerful. The myths that move through the building, right? And being new, they, they're much more apparent than I think after you've been there for a while where they're just sort of the stories that you tell at bedtime. And <laughs> The two that have stood out the most to me in my time there are Shumlin stepping back um, and sort of the hope that people had and then the feeling that people were left with when it didn't work and how much so many people believe that because something didn't work then and they had hope and the hope collapsed and how emotional that reaction is, how impossible it must be now and then the second thing that people is like the strongest myth is the folks who voted for civil unions or even the folks who stepped in after into seats of people who had left because of their vote for civil unions and how much people still thrive from that um, courage, that incredible courage that they feel that they had in the moment. 
and how, I mean, how much, how many years later, and that that's still the most poignant memory. And so I think about how can we take that poignant memory of civil unions and carry it into, I think the issue that is probably singly most important to Vermonters at this point in terms of costs, which is healthcare. And even if we, you know, for Shumlin, maybe the dollars didn't quite line up or the political will didn't line up with the dollars, but people are spending significantly more money on their healthcare now than they were then. And so if people need to take, make a little, businesses might need to pay a little more towards that, but they're paying so much right now that I imagine that's a different equation and a different conversation if we could find the political will to restart that conversation. Well, that's a wonderful uh, characterization of it, Emily. I think there's a significant difference that you probably would agree with me on, and that is that the courage required to do civil unions and gay marriage, while significant, did not require overcoming economic power. Yes. Mm. Oh, yes. That's sort of the roadblock for everything, not just in Vermont, but every state mm -hmm. in the country. And yeah. that's the kind of power we're talking about here. Now, I don't want to diminish what they accomplished back mm -hmm. Uh, overcoming cultural bias like that's a big deal, a very big deal, and thank goodness they did it. But this, like our conversations about economic development, there's a wall. Mm -hmm. For some reason, most of your colleagues are unwilling to touch that wall. Hmm. No, it's really, it's very interesting how um, when I think about especially the Democrats, but I think this is true across party, how sort of the definition of what left politics look like is very comfortable on issues that don't cost anything and very difficult on issues that cost something and how much Vermont's sort of inner conservative spirit comes out in those conversations. So let's say the Green Mountain Care Board was gonna regulate healthcare in a much stronger way. What, what is the blowback that they're scared of and anticipating? I mean, is there, is it the threat of hospitals closing? And I know this is sort of asking you to project beyond um, any audit report, but is it the threat of hospitals closing? Is it the threat of insurance companies shutting down? Like what is on the other side of that hammer? I, I think both are considered legitimate possibilities, but also in the near term, you saw what John Grumstead did. The board had an order with regard to the hospital budgets that basically mm -hmm. said, you know, we're going to do something that you're not going to like, but we think it's appropriate. He basically come out and said, you're breaking the rules. We had an understanding. This is the world we live in, this little narrow space. He went outside that and the board, I won't say caved, but they backed off. Uh, remember, what they do is they respond to submissions by the hospital. They give them guidance. Each year, there is mm -hmm. hospital budget guidance, and it includes this target, this 3.5% target. Well, why are we using a 3.5% target? That is a much faster growth than almost everything else in the economy, right? Including energy prices. Yeah. Why do we accept that as appropriate? Mm -hmm. We need to accept that. We should have a conversation with the hospitals that says, of course, we don't want to lose hospitals. Our communities need you guys and your services, but maybe they don't need to look the way they look today. And if they looked a little different and we made a joint commitment 10 years from now, maybe they would look different enough that we wouldn't need 3.5%, that your uh, expenditures could be brought into line with what people can afford. But that's not the conversation they're having. They're saying, come in at 3.5%. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. What other industry gets to do that? 
They would... Certainly not the industry that pays me. <laughs> so... Same here. <laughs> um, so, but, you know, the Public Utility Commission operates in the same way in that they receive all of their materials from the utilities and negotiate the rates from there. But they, and so they, are you saying the difference is that definition of affordability is much tighter for the utility commission? I think it is. And furthermore, while the Public Utility Commission does allow, this is true all over the country, a predictable profit margin, that's not the same as 3.5% growth every year. Mm -hmm. If the utilities come in and say, boy, look, the purchase power next year is going to go up a lot, they'll say, okay, how are you going to save Vermonters money on the other end with efficiency? Mm -hmm. Now, they adjust that to a large extent in the creation of efficiency Vermont, which a lot of Vermonters don't understand and hate. They don't, they don't hate it at all, but it has saved mm -hmm. enormous sums of money. So the, the Public Utility Commission has a lot of levers and tools. Mm -hmm. has some of those, but they're not using them. Do you know that the board can set prices at hospitals? I did not know that. They have the power to do that. Um, they're not doing that. I mean, that's my point. I'm not sure that they have taken advantage of all the uh, tools at their disposal. And I'm not being disrespectful, sorry about the phone, um, but there needs to be a conversation and it should start with the committees of jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And if it were me and I was on that board with Kevin Mullen and his colleagues, I would say they should start that conversation. If nobody else is initiating it, then let them do it. So not doing I, might, it. I might be getting a little too geeky about organizational forms here, but Never. When I think about the point of, you know, the value of nonprofits versus for-profits and how they provide stability in an economy, it's the idea that they don't need to see growth year after year. Um, that that, you know, impetus towards year-over-year -year growth is particular to the for-profit model. And it's one of the reasons that nonprofits are a useful mechanism in our communities. And so I why why do they need to, why do they how do they even justify that they need to be seeing that growth year over year they would tell you that their costs go up that much yeah that's mm -hmm. it um you know you said earlier you know why don't we do an audit of hospital budget well that's that would require expertise that we don't have in-house mm -hmm. by statute our funding source the single audit revolving fund could pay for that expertise mm -hmm. but absent action by the legislature the hospital could deny us access to the necessary data, mm. which is why I proposed through Ann Donahue, H181, that your colleague Bill Lippert put on the wall and just ignored. So, and only, remind us what uh, that is, H181. The auditor's office has very explicit authority in statute uh, to obtain literally any information that is produced in or obtained by state government in the course of its business including confidential data, as long as we don't then make it public ourselves, personnel data, tax data, HIPAA, which is healthcare data, all of that, we can get anything and we routinely do. And we keep it confidential as need be and tell a story without disclosing. Uh, however, even though contracts with the state include audit provisions that say routinely, the auditor's office has the authority or you have to retain materials necessary for the request of the auditor to determine your performance under this contract for at least three years, if not more. Um, if we went to the hospital and said, we'd like this much information, they'd say, well, almost none of that is related to our performance. Who are you kidding? We're not gonna give it to you. And then we would have to go to court. 
Hmm. So I went to the legislature and I said, I know how they're going to respond when it comes to that day. They have an army of lawyers. So why don't we just deal with that now and expand our authority to include hmm. explicit authority by my office to get this kind of information. We're talking about entities which receive hundreds of millions of dollars of taxpayer money, Medicare, Medicaid, and so forth. Um, and the legislature said, uh, we don't think that's necessary. At least the chair of the committee said that. I don't know. Others might have said the same. It's interesting because if hospitals' um, costs were going up at that same rate every year, or if that growth was going back into wages, then we would see, and we given the percentage of wages that Vermonters earn from healthcare jobs, you would think that that means that wages would in fact keep some degree of parity with the growth in the healthcare industry, but we are seeing that that is not happening. No, so, have seen in the report we did a month or so ago, we looked specifically at the median wage for half a dozen significant healthcare related occupations and compared them to those in metropolitan areas outside of Vermont. And we are, as with almost every occupational title, we pay much less than our competitors do. Mm -hmm. To answer your earlier question about why is it so expensive, it's not because the workers are getting paid so much money. No, right, it's not. There are some very well-paid administrators. Mm -hmm. The vice president for communications or public relations is paid a half a million dollars a year. And there's a dozen- hey, Olga, wrong job you're in. I am so in the wrong job. <laughs> Um, so I don't want us to run out of time and not go back to something that you said about single payer and how it is possible still. Yeah. So can you talk about that a little bit more? I don't, it's my understanding that when Governor Shumlin pulled the plug, the analysis had not been completed. What happened is for a period of months, as I understand it, uh, many, many people in the business community were letting him know that they didn't like the direction it was going in. And there was this belief, which is heard routinely all over this country, this, oh my God, we can't afford this. Look how we'll have to raise taxes, completely ignoring the truth of the matter, which is we won't have any more premiums. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know that. But those folks- I'm Very aware of my premiums. He said, the way to get this done is to have everybody buy in and they weren't buying in. Mm -hmm. Right. Unfortunately. Having said that, you know, for a small community like Vermont, you know, 620, 30,000 people, it would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. It would make more sense, it seems to me, to do a regional. Mm. I was just going to ask about yeah. that, if, if regional would be a better way forward. Yeah. I, I, you know, whoever's elected governor should be asked, will that be your first and most important uh, effort after you're inaugurated to talk to your colleagues, your, your you know, sister states here about that? You know, when, when Phil Scott first ran, he made a big deal. Remember on the heels of the Vermont Health Exchange and the problems we had there, he said, mm. clearly it's broken, we made a mistake, we should either go with the federal plan or Connecticut or whatever it was. Since then, silence. Mm -hmm. You know, where's the commitment to that? I'm not picking on him. I, I said the same thing about some of your colleagues, Emily, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunate. We're not making progress. We're going, we're going the wrong way. Mm -hmm. And I have the temerity to say that. <laughs> I want to circle back to this issue of affordability because it seems to permeate so many of the conversations Emily and I have. 
And so my question for you, Doug, and you can keep this to healthcare or you can broaden it out, you know, from your perspective as someone who has dug into so many different Vermont programs and parts of kind of the Vermont system, what are you seeing as um, any barriers to affordability? And, and like, what are some concrete steps maybe the state should be taking to make things more affordable for Vermonters? Yeah, that, that's easy for me. As the guy who wrote the job gap study starting 23 years ago, I understood at the outset that we were going to estimate the livable wage. And in order to do that, we had to create what we call the basic needs budget. Mm-hmm. Or frills, just a basic needs budget. And then I knew people would say to me, well, Doug, you know, if we can't mandate a livable wage, uh, what is the state to do? And I said, that's really not that complicated. The major line items in a family budget are very simple. Housing, healthcare, and childcare for those with kids. That Mm -hmm. makes up an enormous percentage of the typical household budget. Luckily, we know how to do some of those things. Mm -hmm. Vermont is with many, many states in the human and physical affordable housing infrastructure that we have. It's staggering how much good we've done on affordable housing. Having said that, we still have a huge gap, but we know how to do that. Uh, We have the property transfer tax, the Vermont uh, Housing Conservation Board and Trust in Burlington. Uh, Almost 30 years ago, we adopted inclusionary zoning, which I'll encourage you to talk to your town about. Uh, We have it. We actually have it in Brattleboro, too. There's a lot of things that we know how to do well including perpetually affordable housing. Mm-hmm. The governor never talks about it. He says, oh, you know, we'll have some workforce housing, but if the first buyer that you owe them, if it's affordable to you at, pick a number, 80% of median, you live there for 10 years, but your family grows, now you're ready to move out, get a bigger place or whatever, you want to take all that equity out with you. But if you do that, it won't be affordable to the next family. Mm-hmm. So Champlain Housing Trust and others have this old land trust model, which is brilliant. They retained some of the equity in the property. And some of the detail that got lost in the housing funding debate um, early in the pre-pandemic and early in the pandemic is most of the governor's proposals around housing were not perpetually affordable. They were short-term affordable to sort of clean up streets, but were not going to be perpetually affordable. So it's sort of sending state dollars out there that are not going to continue to serve the public good. When I think about affordable for me, it's, you know, if the cost of healthcare um, is able to go down or to be transferred to a public good, then it's more affordable for employers who can then pay higher wages and people don't need to make as much because they're not paying healthcare costs out of pocket. So it's a win-win. And I think childcare is really entering that realm where businesses are very, very ready to say we are losing staff, we are losing hours, we are losing efficiency because of the childcare crisis. So we will actually save money as businesses that we can turn into wages if the childcare crisis is solved. And so that's another way that affordability, providing a public service makes costs both more affordable for the employee and the employer who can then move it into wages again. So it's, Those virtuous cycles are the best. I'm so glad you mentioned that. About 20 years ago, uh, I did a job for, in fact, a Wyndham County-based childcare group, which I think is still around and very prominent. I didn't have kids. I knew nothing about childcare. 
but I learned some things. And even today, the federal government's at the table with money that's used for subsidies. The state uh, supports subsidies. Parents spend whatever they can. Everybody's maxed out except one party. And this is typically not the way childcare is perceived. We know it has tremendous advantages for as, as early childhood education, for socialization, preparation, mm -hmm. all that good stuff. But nobody talks enough about the fact that the labor market doesn't work without childcare. And if, well, I, you know, in the list of things to thank the pandemic for, <laughs> along with comfortable pants, yes. I want to thank the pandemic for um, this latest number of the fact that 80% of the people who left the workforce last month were women is stunning, horrifying, terrifying, all of the words, but also a really clear clarion call that the workforce suffers when childcare and humans and women especially suffer when childcare is not taken care of. And so I, you know, it's amazing how many times we have to have these conversations in different contexts for them to stick, but I do feel like it is a little stickier right now because mm -hmm. of the pandemic. I would add, and I know they are not apples to apples, but along with childcare, I would add um, elder care mm -hmm. because we do have an aging population and so many families are sandwiched between caring for their children and caring for their aging relatives. Um, so I would, I would throw that in there as well. Very good point. Mm -hmm. uh, Absolutely. Real quick, your, your comment, Emily, about the need for it from the employer's perspective. Back when I did that work, within a year or two prior, the governor of New Hampshire, of all places, brought together a business group and said, mm -hmm. I want to know what the cost to the state is and to all of you for not having adequate childcare, not enough slots, too expensive, and so forth. And they came up with a, a staggering number in the multi-billions, and this was 20 years ago, of course, mm -hmm. twice our size. And they understood uh, you know, the uncertainty for the parents, absenteeism, late to work, all this crazy stuff that Vermont has never quantified or attempted to quantify. I think it could be very helpful in the debate. And I think Let's Grow Kids has gone a long way in quantifying that. And this last year on Commerce, we were able to bring together the Chamber and the Regional Development Corporations and a bunch of different sort of players in um, the business space who all said that childcare is the single most important issue we need you to solve, Commerce Committee. And I said, great, let's take all of our money that's in the budget that's usually allocated to commerce and let's put it to childcare. Is that a-okay with you all? And they said, no, we want you to also pay for all the other stuff. <laughs> well, yeah. Which, you know, everyone wants all the cake and that's great. Um, that's the problem. And I, that I have, is the problem. I have a suggestion that they won't like, and it is not my business as auditor, so I'll take my auditor hat on and put on my citizen Doug hat. In my view, childcare is no less, perhaps even more important than unemployment insurance and workers' comp. And if you accept that, then you begin to think about, well, how would we pay for that? How would we find the money? Because childcare, like so many other things, requires money to fix or to expand. Yeah. And if you were to have a fund that charged that required every employer to pay five or ten cents an hour mm -hmm. the fund for every wage earner it would raise tens of millions of dollars yeah. now that by itself is not going to solve the problem but that would be and payroll taxes are a political nightmare yes. but continue on i think it's a great idea mm -hmm. it wouldn't 
payroll tax. The employers would pay it okay. directly, mm-hmm. as they do for workers' comp and unemployment. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay. It's not enough to make a difference in cross-border wage stuff. Five no. or ten cents an hour is nothing. You know. mm-hmm. right. I'll take my citizen Doug hat off. You could call it your politician Doug hat too. You are you are running for office like after that. all. Um, we are coming close to the end of time. So I just want to touch in with you, Doug, quickly. Any closing thoughts you want to leave our listeners with? Yeah, the thing that is most needed, in my view, is for the legislature to take this more seriously than they have in the last few years. So I would encourage, I mean, Emily's already there in her own mind, uh, although she's not on one of the committees of jurisdiction, but um, those are her colleagues. I would Who knows en- what committee I'll be on next year, too? I would encourage your uh, viewers, friends and neighbors, to contact their reps and senators and say, hey, what have you done about healthcare affordability? Not, not to call them out, but to say, come on, we're not making any progress. Look at the report that the auditors are seeing. Because mm-hmm. they have the power. Thank you, uh, State Auditor Doug Hoffer, for joining us today. Remind us, uh, where can people find some of the reports that you have done? On our website. Um, go to vermont.gov, and all the statewides are on the main government page, and you can go there. Fantastic. Emily, do you have a toast for today? If not, I do. Go for it. If you have one, I can come up with one. So I want to toast to this deeper conversation of affordability. And I think Doug needs to find a cup. Oh, okay. You have one nearby? You don't? I'm so sorry. It's quite all right. A pen, maybe. A pen. Yes. The pen is mightier than the sword. Um, toast to this deeper conversation of, of affordability and how so often in Vermont, we don't have the conversations we need to have on this deep level, but how excited I am because it seems like we are starting to have them more. And I hope we just continue that good work. Thanks to the two of you. Thank Thank you. you, Cheers. And... On that happy note, that is all the time we have, beautiful people, for today's uh, Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. We air 2 p.m. on Fridays, or you can also find us at the Vermontitude Facebook page, the Vermontitude SoundCloud page, and Emily, where can people find you? Folks can find me at emilykornheiser.org, where you can find my Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, newsletter feeds and you can also attend my weekly community conversations every saturday at 10 a.m via zoom login information for that is in any of the other places i just mentioned and i hope to someday see some of you in real life again thank you everyone thank you doug thank you emily have a great weekend